Hey guys, I'm Amy. I'm Michaela, and, and this, this is, is the Poetry, Poetry Slam. Slam. Today's poet is Robert Browning, who was born in London in 1812. To contextualise this view, think of classic Victorian fashion. The wealthy men and women wore coattails and poofy dresses, and the city's alive as it emerges from the Industrial Revolution. Definitely, and there's a lot of key elements about the Victorian era that influence Browning's writings, but we'll talk about that more a bit later. Of course, back to baby Browning then. Haha, <laughs> his early life consisted of minimal formal education and was primarily composed of exploring his father's extensive library. It was here that young Robert discovered texts on the early developments of human and animal anatomy, medieval legend, psychology and chemistry. What a time to be alive. The library held information that not many young children would be knowledgeable of and has been noted to be a key influence on the strange disturbed characters that he writes of in his later work. And on top of this, Browning's relatives such as his parents and grandfather passed on tendencies of mysticism, philosophizing and a speculative habit of mind. Robert's lack of formal education fostered his imagination under the watch of tutors and he was encouraged to pursue his creative passions by his father who had also wanted to be a writer. It is important for us to point out that Robert's creativity included very few elements of fairy tale styled writings but instead homed on in his environment using the renaissance setting as a backdrop for a myriad of untrusting, crafty and intelligent characters who acted immorally in the eyes of Browning's readers. Yeah, and it wasn't unusual for Browning's work to be critiqued harshly because of the darkness in which he wrote. In fact, his first piece, Pauline, A Fragment of a Confession, in 1833 was criticised so badly that Browning never wrote of his own feelings again, and instead began to write objectively in the dramatic monologue format to separate himself from his work. I mean, you would hope he wasn't writing about his own thoughts or experiences in his work, since quite a few contained mad narrators who killed their spouses or just plain psychos. Especially if you were his wife, Elizabeth Barrett Browning, who ran away with him to Italy where he wrote some of his most famous work. To read your husband's work that involved these bizarre characters, I mean, I would advise her to get out of there as soon as possible. Yeah, me too, but that was kind of Browning's niche, his little quirk. He wrote in the perspective of these crafty characters to draw attention to the morality of individuals and to understand the inner workings of sociopaths. These were written at a time where serial killers were at high, like people who were being killed left, right and centre, and one may very well consider what went through the minds of these murderers. And that's just what Browning wrote about. This is a great segue, actually, into the poems we're going to be looking at today. Browning often wrote about what he saw in his fellow man, including the control exerted by males and the irony in their actions. His piece Porphyria's Lover contains such a character who kills this woman named Porphyria to achieve what he sees as an eternal preservation of her love, which can similarly be viewed through the poem My Last Duchess. He also writes of hypocrisy and jealousy in Soliloquy of a Spanish Cloister, which we'll go into further detail about in a second. For you to understand what we're talking about, it's advised that you take a quick look at these poems or even have them in front of you. If you need a moment to gather your things, here's a quick intermission. Cool, cool, cool. Welcome back, everybody. We're going to jump straight in and draw your attention to a theme which is common across all of these poems that we've mentioned, and that is Browning's passion for understanding the human psychology, which we mentioned before. It's interesting because Browning takes you behind the eyes of these narrators to see what they're seeing and think what they're thinking. Our main poem, Porphyria's Lover, gives an insight into the mind of this character, the lover. He's sitting on the couch as Porphyria glides in, all fairy-like, and she ignores him and goes on about her business, lighting the fire and whatnot. 
You know, you're watching as the scene unfolds in the eyes of the guy who's sitting on the couch. You get to experience as she puts his arm around her shoulder and he describes her smooth white shoulder bare and all her yellow hair displaced. Through the thoughts that Browning describes, you get into the mind of this lusty male as this scene goes from an innocent night to a murder. You definitely get to notice how intoxicating his style of writing is. The dramatic monologue definitely captures your attention because you feel like you are that character. It makes you think of situations that you hopefully have never been in or have thoughts of murder and exploitation that I hope no one has. It's really intriguing, especially compared to the writing of other artists in that period. You know, like, Browning makes you think and debate what's happening beyond the scene, especially in this poem. Like, did he kill her or do we only think that he killed her? Because that's what all of the interpretations say about what happened. In Porfiria's Lover, what's their relationship? Was she a carer or a lover? Was she married? We don't know, but the poem is so engaging in this manner. This style also helped Browning in engaging with his audience at the time because, although critiqued, his later work receives high praise for its ability to address the issues of the Victorian era, such as a rise in female sensuality, which is shown through Fafiria's lover. And in My Last Duchess too, I mean, her mantle laps over my lady's wrist too much, meaning that her wrist was showing. How scandalous. (laughs) I know, right? Browning also highlighted his own opinions of his fellow man by exploring their thought processes in his writing. Soliloquy of a Spanish Cloister emphasises that Robert thought men were hypocritical and willing to invent their own opposition to elevate themselves. Yeah, and this ties well into our second theme, which is that many of Browning's characters had what can be viewed as inappropriate priorities. In Porfiria's Lover, it can be interpreted that Porfiria has an inappropriate connection with her lover. The line, so she came through wind and rain, alludes to her disregarding the strong social constraints placed on her. She can be viewed as someone of a high social rank with a potential beau back at a party that she's just left, but in spite of this, she still comes to meet with her lover. Above this, she's also described as being a fallen woman. This comes from her soiled gloves and promiscuous, very forward actions towards her lover. Within the same poem, the lover becomes fixated upon her love for him and shows his intentions of maintaining this affection by killing her. That moment she was mine, mine fair. He wishes to possess this fondness eternally, such that he even describes her smiling little rosy head that he has captured in her death. That's so ironic, because she's willing to give up everything for him, which is obviously what he wants, and yet he kills her to preserve her love. See? He has some seriously inappropriate priorities. Yeah, but we get to see this again in My Last Duchess, the conflict of the Duke and the Duchess's priorities, and a crude result. Yeah, of course. It starts with her fascination and appreciation of life. She smiles at everything and finds amusement in the small things in life, like the dropping of the daylight in the West. Through that statement alone, Browning shows that the Duke scorns her and sees that as an inappropriate priority because of the alliterative D sounds. He's also salty because she doesn't value his gift of a 900 years old name above what she views as the gift of life. Her joy is despised by him. Yeah, and then all smiles stop together. He kills her for being happy. What the heck? I know, right? The Duke's priorities are freaking whack. Not only does he kill her, but he seems to love her more now that she's dead and is just a painting. Some interpretations say that she was actually painted onto the wall as well, which would mean that the Duchess can never leave the Duke's gallery. She can never be bought or bartered. He has complete control over her through the curtain he's placed. No one can look at her unless they have the Duke's permission. It's like he's obsessed with her, but only when he knows that he is the one with complete control. Yeah, and this priority of having so much control is further emphasised through the Duke's statue of Neptune taming a seahorse, whereby the Duke sees himself as Neptune, therefore a god, and he's taming his duchess, the seahorse. That is seriously messed up, although I can appreciate how Browning uses in the poem to show all of this. 
Wow, Michaela, a great use of Google pronunciation there. That's not the end either. Our third poem, Soliloquy of a Spanish Cloister, is narrated by a man who's angry and spiteful of his colleague, Brother Lawrence, who's a famous priest from the 1800s and, is, and who is known to be very holy and a brilliant servant of the Lord. The speaker in this poem describes a variety of scenes, including perving on nuns and viewing scrofulous French novels. <coughs> Porn. The use of imagery reflects the accusations back to the narrator as he would have to have seen these scenes to know how to describe them. The narrator is fixated on ruining the reputation of another priest when he should instead be focusing on redeeming himself for his sinful actions. Therefore, his priorities are twisted. That's an understatement, Michaela. <laughs> well, with all this talk of focusing on the wrong details, makes me wonder how trustworthy our narrators truly are. We've talked about murderers and hypocrites here, but these aren't exactly redeeming qualities. How do I know whose side of the story is right. Well, you don't, which brings us to our third theme, which is Browning's fascination with using unreliable and controlling characters to tell these whacked up stories. Hang on, doesn't that relate back to our first theme too? It sure does, but the exploration of human psychology was more to do with the influence of Browning's environment, but this theme is going to get to the nitty gritty of each of these poems. Why don't you start? Alrighty, so in the first scene of our main poem, Porphyria's Lover, the description of the weather is Browning using pathetic fallacy, which is a literary device that attributes human qualities or emotions to inanimate objects of nature. The rain set in early tonight, the sullen wind was soon awake, it tore the elm tops down for spite and did its worst to vex the lake. This raw and nasty weather reflects on our narrator. He's jealous, spiteful, and has a psychopathic state of mind. Mm, and he's a bit of a creep too. He just sits on the couch, watching as she undresses and lights the fire, waiting for her to pay him attention. There's a line, be sure I looked up at her eyes, which are his first actual actions of the poem. In the 31st line, he sits and he stares at her for 31 lines. That's so creepy. Who does that? Well, he does, and there's further signs of his delusions and unreliability after he kills Porphyria. He claims that her eyes are without a stain, which isn't actually possible because after you're strangled like she was, the veins in your eyes pop. That's nice, though. He still sees her as perfect, even though she's dead. Yeah, I mean, no, my perfect man sees me as perfect without strangling me with my own hair to prove it. Hmm, another man I wouldn't want in my life is that Duke from The Last Duchess. We've already touched on his controlling nature, but when you look further, the guy is just as crazy as the lover. This guy is just plain mad, I swear. From Browning's use of enjambment and rhyming couplets, you can see that the Duke is engaging in a conversation, but the fact that this conversation is about him killing his own wife shows that the Duke will control his wife beyond death. He also repeats the sentence there she stands as if alive, which, like, reiterates that the guy's a psycho. We know by now that the dramatic monologue is showing his exact thought process, so him repeating this just exaggerates that he's both menacing and crazy. Oath, and then there's Browning's use of ellipsis in this text, so that's the pauses between the words, which changes his thoughts of his duchess from a heart too soon made glad to a heart, how shall I say, too soon made glad. Which definitely makes it more eerie and maddening on his behalf. Mm, how close Browning and his techniques? The guy's a genius. Literally. And I mean, it really shows in the soliloquy of a Spanish cloister too. You see the narrator using rhyme to emphasise his own self-righteousness and his particular attention to tradition. Oof, that's so extra. Amy, Browning is extra. He also uses repetition in the structure of the stanzas, whereby the narrator will describe a scene in explicit detail and then manipulates the same scene to transfer the guilt of his actions onto Brother Lawrence. 
I love that this narrator is like, nah, I'm so innocent. Look at this douche brother Lawrence acting all holy. But really, he's a sinning fool when it's the reverse. I know. Browning out sets the narrator in some top-notch irony here and exposes him as a controlling, coercive and hateful guy. Hence, we're seeing Browning's fascination with using unreliable and controlling characters. Yes, we are. That and the themes of psychological portraits and using characters with inappropriate priorities are shown amongst all three poems through Browning's intrinsic use of literary techniques, form, rhythm and rhyme schemes. And there we have it guys, the lovely Robert Browning. Isn't he just fantastic? Not only did he popularise the dramatic monologue, but he also created a movement of using art to question the morality of humans. His legacy is one that remains notable today. Textual integrity is definitely something that most of Browning's work possesses, since his style and approach have been observed to be mirrored by the likes of even Robert Frost and Ezra Pound. The guy had influence and a real way with words. On that note, we hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Poetry Slam. See See you guys guys next time. time!